0: Thank you for downloading this New Zealand Sports Radio show. We have a new way that you can support us. There is a link in the notes down below where you can make a one-off donation to New Zealand Sports Radio. Thank you for support and uh, enjoy the show. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: Welcome everybody to the long talk. And today we have the privilege of interviewing Warren Brosnihan, former shark, lion, blue bull in both super rugby and the Curry Cup. A man who played for Ulster in the Heineken Cup and the Celtic Cup. And we'll get to that later. Who played for Calvisano in Italy who had a stint with the then Perth Reds in rugby league in 96 in Australia. The Perth Reds went on to become the Melbourne Storm. A man who played six test matches for the Springboks, including two against the All Blacks. He is currently a rugby commentator for Supersport in South Africa. And one of his greatest achievements was surviving five years in high school with me, my very good mate, Warren Brosnian.
1: Hey Jono, how's it going? Good to get to you <laughs> in New Zealand, man.
2: It's good to see you, Braz, and thank you for making time to join us for the long talk. If I was to ask you, Braz, what's your earliest sporting memory?
1: Good question, actually, especially coming from New Zealand. My earliest sporting memory, and it's a, and it's a rugby one, is the 1981 uh, tour of the, the Springboks Tour of New Zealand, the, the infamous mm-hmm. uh, Flower Bomb series. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's my greatest memory as far as my shaping rugby I remember as a mm-hmm. youngster waking up early in the morning uh, with my old man, my father, my mother, um, to watch mm-hmm. the games. And back then, the, the the rugby, obviously, it wasn't geared around TV like it is nowadays. And uh, mm-hmm. those games must have happened probably 1 o'clock in New Zealand time. So it was very early in the morning here mm-hmm. in South Africa. And waking up in the morning with a, some Marlo, uh
0: the blankets,
1: yeah. watching these games and uh, yeah. that's really what shaped me and uh, it's it's where my passion for the game, where the, honestly, it's where my ca- passion for the game started, just watching that test match series, all the things that were going on, the planes flying overhead, dropping the flower bombs, the, the sides, the, everything that took part in the tour, absolutely as a youngster, it really, mm-hmm. it got hold of me and uh, it, it, it set a dream that I wanted to to play rugby at, at the highest level and, uh, uh, you know, that's that's where it all started, John.
2: I suppose. I, I, early-
1: yeah, I was a youngster, probably nine, ten years of age. I had to do the mess to work out how old I was. But um, We would have been, yeah.
2: been nine. Yeah. We would have been nine. It's my earliest rugby memory also, waking up with the Milo, with the dad. And I still remember in that last test, the flower bomb test, walking up to the TV and pointing. You know, you're nine years old. You don't know much about the game and you you know understand broadcasting. And I remember pointing at the TV as this plane swooped down and dropped the flower mm-hmm. bombs and going to my dad. Does this happen in every game? <laughs> because this is really cool. This, this yeah. is rugby where you're playing like this and you're having to keep an eye on the, the Luftwaffe, you know. I thought, this is a game for me. Um, did, what other sports did you watch with your family, with your dad? No,
1: like you I mean, uh, Jono, you know that I, I love my sport as, as a youngster. I mean, whether it was cricket, athletics, um, I just used to, I used to, I loved it. I mean, we wanted, we were a family that was active. Uh, when we had mm-hmm. holidays we'd be it would be an active holiday we'd be going to the beach we'd be going to the dam we'd be windsurfing we'd be in the sea um, mm-hmm. so whether it was surfing whether it was playing cricket whether it was whatever it happened to be i, I enjoyed i enjoyed the outdoors mm-hmm. and i enjoyed uh enjoyed being physical and uh, mm-hmm. and uh and, and pushing myself uh, that's that's mm-hmm. something that's wish and today I'm not fifty yet, forty-eight, but uh, it still shapes me. Nearly 48, 50 years later, mm-hmm. you know that's that's been that's part of my part of my DNA, I believe.
2: Mm-hmm. And when did you play the the classic cricket in the garden in the driveway with your brother?
1: No, Of course, <laughs> of course, we broke we broke many windows. Uh, used, to yep. old, uh, we used to take the old, used uh, to take the old tennis ball and uh, and tape it up mm-hmm. like you do with some insulation tape, get mm-hmm. it to swing. And uh, no, no, mm-hmm. the back, back, back room. It was it was a back room. Cricket, backroom, rugby, playing touch rugby it was a mm-hmm. bit sort of a mismatch with my brother because he wasn't rugby wasn't he liked it but it's, uh, it, was, it was a mismatch let's put it that way so
2: you were a bit bigger uh, than that. We back. had
1: a great fun, my brother and I, and it, that's mm-hmm. where having a brother sometimes is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would be in the backyard playing cricket, mm-hmm. whatever it happened to me uh, or mm-hmm. rugby.
0: And your first and time, your first school- time with with yeah, with your first time actually out on on a rugby pitch. I've chatted, chatted to a couple of guys and they go, yeah, we ran out there at, four, at, at age like four or five and we're playing full contact. Were you, were your, were your first experiences of rugby full contact or did, or, did, or had you got sort to of touch and ripper no, back in the day? <laughs> no, it was
1: full contact. Back there we, we, we played mini rugby. We had like, a, I think we, we, we called it mini rugby on a, on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And my father mm-hmm. used to take us down to, there was a club down in Durban next to the Kings Park Rugby Stadium called College Rovers. Mm-hmm. And when I was a nine, ten 10-year-old, on a Sunday morning, there we would be playing barefoot rugby. I think we were 10 a side. Uh, we had a front row and a second row. And uh, we would play every Sunday. And at that stage, you weren't, we weren't really playing rugby at school. So, it was actually mm-hmm. really good because it got me geared towards when I got a little bit older and we were playing. And I think it was stand at two primary school, we started playing rugby
2: at school. So, like year four of Yeah,
1: school. Yeah, year four. Yeah, I still get yeah. yeah, a little bit mixed up. our yeah. Year four, grade mm-hmm. four.
2: Year four. So, um, did you really kick into playing school sport at
1: high school? Yeah. I think high school was the, was the, it was the standard six year. John, you were there with me. I think it was a big year for me.
2: Second uh, form, into you're high eight, school. Yeah, you're
1: yeah. eight going, going, going into high school and, uh, you know, just going into this bigger pool of players and suddenly you're getting challenged mm-hmm. and suddenly there's a little bit of testosterone that's flowing through your body because you're going through puberty. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly I found myself scoring a try or two, um, enjoying mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were just, it just, Seems to build. One thing leads to another, and uh, I've got very fond you have memories of my first year of high school, playing sport and mm-hmm. uh, trying to make it. And this this big little guy coming into high school seems like such a big place. But uh, when you mm-hmm. look back now, it's not that big. But uh, it was mm-hmm. like a major thing for us, and uh, mm-hmm. for me, that that was instrumental in my schooling mm-hmm. and my, and that that sets a very good foundation.
2: I still remember um, when we were second form, first year in there in high school going into the change room after the first team rugby had had practice. And there was a huge prop by the name of Warren Barr. Do you remember? I remember. Warren Barr. And we That's were, recent. you know, my voice was still up like this up here. And Warren Barr walked out of the shower and he looked like a bear. Just had like a chest wig like this. And I and I remember thinking, my word, this is a whole other world here. Right? And, that, and walked backwards out of the first team change room. Um, now, you were head boy or head prefect in your final year of school. You were widely expected to make the Sharks schoolboy rep side in your final year of school and also widely expected to push for selection in the South African schoolboy side. But all of those expectations were upended. What happened?
1: No, just uh, in, in, in that, that final year of school, I, uh, I got sick. Um, and the amazing thing is it's, I ended up with uh, – I had three points spots in my lungs where I had this uh, pneumonia, this focused pneumonia. Uh, I had septicemia and pleurisy, and um, I was very, very sick in hospital. And the amazing thing was actually – it was actually caused through rugby, which uh, mm-hmm. sounds totally crazy. But it was a different form of pneumonia, and it was because I got this infection. I was playing, and uh, as you do when you're a schoolboy, I had all these uh, – we called them roasties. All the all the, the grass burns on my on my elbows, and I had mm-hmm. hardly any skin left on my elbow. And uh, I'll never forget we were playing against one of one of the schoolboy sides, and I, I thought, as a youngster, I thought I'm going to have to shut this up because I can't just have this exposed and open. So I got like gauze, put it over it, and then I didn't have any. As schoolboys, we didn't have any in any, any uh, elastic and the proper taping. So mm-hmm. I had an insulation tape for putting around my head. Next thing I'm, I'm strapping this insulation tape around my mm-hmm. elbow and uh, playing in the game, played the game. And after the game, obviously with uh, whatever happened, I ended up having, getting all these boils. and It was like a line of boils where I'd put the, um, put the tape. And mm-hmm. The following week, uh, I, I played the game again and, uh, and uh, my elbow was damn sore. I'll never forget because this whole thing was inflamed. And I actually ended up breaking my left wrist. Because I couldn't, mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't take the weight onto my elbow. And that mm-hmm. gave, me a, gave me a blood infection which got lodged in my, in my lungs and caused pneumonia. Mm-hmm. I ended up mm-hmm. as, a, as a youngster who was probably only weighing about 90 kilograms at the time. Before I mm-hmm. knew it, I was weighing 76, 75 kilograms, lying in mm-hmm. hospital fighting for my life. and uh, So I never got the opportunity really to, to play provincial rugby. And that had always been my dream and my goal as a youngster. Mm-hmm. Because it just happened that I went in to hospital the week. That we had the uh, we called it Natal schools in those days Natal schools trials or Sharks mm-hmm. trials, um, and mm-hmm. I was going to represent the north, the area north of Durban, in those trials mm-hmm. at number eight. And uh, I never went into I never I never made it. i was sitting in
2: hospital. Mm-hmm. So, I still remember well you coming back weeks later from convalescing, and it looked like your head had shrunk, <laughs> like your like your hair was too big for your head. You'd lost so much weight; it looked like you shrunk down obviously from from fighting this infection now obviously that then threw a huge span in the plans because I'm sure you were hoping to progress those were still the days of of amateurism amateur rugby the early 90s so finishing school in 89 uh, 1990 how did that affect your plans post uh, post school well, you, know,
1: you know it was actually amazing because that's you know what it's like as a schoolboy. You sit. To you, my my folks sat me down, made me write my goals down, what I wanted to achieve, and that was one of the ones. One of the items I'd written down that I wanted to achieve was play for my province at schoolboy level, and I hadn't made it, so I was devastated as a youngster. And um, I wasn't. You know, I'm trying to process this whole thing, but I, when I look back in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that happened to me because it gave me the hunger mm-hmm. uh, to to carry on and to fight. Because what happened is the following year, and it was probably a blessing in disguise. I went on Rotary Exchange, uh, went to Australia, was based in Canberra, pretty exciting mm-hmm. place, good place to, to be. And I uh, spent a year in, in Canberra. It's <laughs> a sarcastic. It. Wait, I say it's sarcastic because everyone says that, but I actually loved it. Uh, and uh, spent yeah. the year in Canberra and, uh, I, 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 and, and I went into the schooling system in, in, uh, in Canberra and I was in the north of Canberra um, and managed to get selected there for the uh, ACT equivalent, or was the ACT Brumbies or their schoolboy, tournament mm-hmm. so I got to play in the Australian national championships in uh, in 1990 in their schoolboy championships mm-hmm. so for me that was uh, I didn't quite get it in South Africa what I wanted to do but I managed mm-hmm. to, to play it there in Australia and in some ways it was really different and uh, it opened the mm-hmm. world and I met new people and so mm-hmm. I, you know, that was a it was amazing experience to have that year in Australia as a development mm-hmm. stage for me as, mm-hmm. as a human being an individual mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I let me come back from us When I came back from Australia, I was really confident to try and give it a go in South mm-hmm. Africa.
2: So, if I was to ask you to describe for our New Zealand listeners, we've got other listeners around the world, how would you describe South African schoolboy rugby?
1: Whew, it's passionate, passionate, passionate. I mean, it's, it's actually amazing. We've, we, and we're probably going to get into this discussion a bit later. We see the crowds dwindling. At some of our at some of our franchise level games and stuff like it, it's not happening at schoolboy level here in South Africa. The people are out there watching. Um, there's a there's a passion about about the schoolboy um, game, and um, it's it's in a way it's quite worrying. But sometimes you'll see more. I don't know if it is worrying or not. So I've got to qualify the statement. But you'll have a you'll have like a a, 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 a curry cup game happening on a, on a Saturday in South Africa. But there're more more people going to watch the the schoolboy game that's happening around the corner, um, so there's there's a huge interest. I mean, rugby we have got to grow the game, and rugby's obviously taken a, I believe, it's taken a mm-hmm. few shots over the years with a few a few bad decisions. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I mean, New mm-hmm. Zealand's a passionate rugby country, um, one that we I've got the utmost respect for, and uh, there's no mm-hmm. greater country I believe for me or as a South African to go play the game than in than mm-hmm. in New Zealand. Um, but mm. here in South Africa as well, we've got that same—it's—it's it's passionate, mm. and we, we do love our rugby. And uh, you know, mm. you, the, little, the boys get exposed to it quite quite young as, mm. as schoolboys, and mm. uh, it's part part of our DNA, I believe.
2: Now, what was different when you went in 1990 and you were playing in Canberra? What did you find was different about how rugby was played, even back then, between schoolboys in Australia and schoolboys in South Africa?
1: It was massive. <laughs> it was massive. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the rugby games we played for the school, we played mid-week. For, and in mm-hmm. the school, I went to a government school. So, rugby wasn't really the focus. Um, they, mm-hmm. were bigger, they were bigger. They, they preferred rugby league. Um, it was mm-hmm. my first introduction into rugby league. So, I played, played predominantly for my school at rugby league. They had one or two mm-hmm. games playing rugby union, but not many. And mm-hmm. because I was a rugby, I mean, I'd grown up playing rugby union. I wanted to play rugby union. I went and joined uh, a club called West in, in Canberra. And as mm-hmm. a 17, 18-year-old, I started playing. I played club rugby for that club, and I think mm-hmm. we ended up. playing for the third team at, at men's level, but, mm-hmm. but still at school. And it's mm-hmm. uh, it's the that's um, where I first met uh, Rod Kafer, who now commentates mm-hmm. for Australia. He was playing for that club. Uh, Mario O'Connor was another one uh, who played centre mm-hmm. um, as well. So I, it was it, so I, schoolboy in at, at Australia, especially government level. Was more rugby league. The private schools mm-hmm. in 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 Canberra where I was, it was more rugby union. But I was at a government school, so uh, mm-hmm. the the opportunities at at uh, at um, at rugby union weren't that great at the school. So it's almost weird the way I made it into that ACT team. But I think it was because of the the games I was playing for my club. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where they really got to see me because the club, the school I was at, was predominantly mm-hmm. a rugby league. Club.
2: Now, when it comes to the style of rugby that you experience, now, for those of you who don't know um, the rugby in the different areas of South Africa, traditionally the rugby that was played in KwaZulu Natal is a more running style of rugby at schoolboy level than some of the other provinces. But when you compare the rugby that you were playing and you were being trained in in uh, KwaZulu Natal in South Africa versus the way it was taught and the way you were trained in in uh, ACT, Australian Capital Territories, in 1990. What was the difference?
1: It's tough, You know, probably the skills, though. Eh? There was a, a lot of emphasis on skills when you came to coaching time, I believe, in Australia, and they spent a lot of time on it. I think in South Africa, what they did is they said, skills, the guys learn the skills. We'd play touch every, John. You knew every Sunday... Every Wednesday, there'd be a touch touch rugby being played Mm -hmm. by the the schoolboys. And we'd Mm -hmm. basically self-generate our own skills by playing the touch rugby that we'd play. We would spend Mm -hmm. from 2 o'clock until 5 o'clock playing touch rugby on a Sunday.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It was our Sunday. And then on school holidays, we'd be down on the beach. And we'd be playing touch rugby on the beach. So our, till our yeah. feet were bleeding from the from the mm-hmm. from the, the sand rubbing the skin off mm-hmm. the bottom of our, our feet. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up as a mm-hmm. youngster. So we learned our skills there, as opposed mm-hmm. to when you got to the training session. I believe in South Africa, it was more, more about it was quite a traditional set piece orientated. Do this, do that. Your plays. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna how are you going to do it? Australia was teach you again, learning more skills in the training session, um, which mm-hmm. which I which I picked up on. And obviously, you remember, Rugby Union in Australia, especially back then, wasn't mm-hmm. uh, well. Mm-hmm. You've got to Australian rules. You know the story in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Rug- rules, mm-hmm. rugby league. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. of other competing sports there as well. So, you've got to compete for your your, your little bit of space there. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it was just just a different a different attitude. I think. And mm-hmm. the thing about Australia and New Zealand is that I believe the players come through younger than what we do in South right. Africa. And I think they have given that gap and like where I was sitting when I was in Australia. Suddenly, if I wanted to play rugby, I had to go join a club. And there was none under the 21s. Yeah. There was none under 18s. I'd go play the seniors as a youngster. Right. So suddenly you're thrown into this, and you've got to either you stink or you, you, or you, you, mm-hmm. you, you, flounder. I don't know what it's like there now. Um, mm-hmm. So and and you would see these youngsters coming up in Australian rugby or even New Zealand rugby, mm-hmm. very very young. Whereas the South mm-hmm. African, uh, stereotypically South African, it doesn't happen all the time, but back then mm-hmm. would start maybe 21, 22, 23 starts coming through. You'd see this mm-hmm. 18, 19, 20 year old coming through out of Australasia. That, where you mm. wouldn't really see that in South Africa,
2: right? So you come back. I'm not. In fact, you say that. I'm thinking immediately of Orrin and Little in '91. Yeah, correct. It's a very good example. <laughs> yeah, very
1: good example. Two fantastic players, two fantastic blokes, and uh, mm. you know, I mean, they were they were the, um, the they were the probably one of the, the best center pairings the world has seen.
2: Mm. So you come back to South Africa in '91, right? And suddenly. South is let back into
0: world sport. Right. Oh, can I can we, quickly ask about? Sure. that? Did you go to Craven Week? Because I mean, that's one of those kind no. sort of big, big things. So you missed out on that because of because of your illness.
1: So that, that that's the that's what John was speaking about. So that Craven Week was the uh, South Africa national championships that we've got every year. Um, in fact, now with what's happening with with COVID nineteen, it's the first time that it's been. Um, postponed, delayed. I think since 1964, or 19 whatever. I can't remember the date offhand. I might be just off with that date, but it's been a long time. It's been running every single year, um, mm-hmm. and I didn't go. So the amazing thing is that I actually <laughs> it was up. It was held up in Johannesburg that year, and uh, I drove up and went to watch um, that uh, that uh, Craven Week. Uh, watched mm-hmm. from the sidelines, not to not be playing. Watched the Natal team that I wanted to play for play. And uh, my first training session and my comeback after that 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 uh, that sickness was actually one of the fields up in Johannesburg where I honestly thought I don't even know what I, I don't actually don't even want to vocalise what I thought because I felt so bad, and it was obviously also the altitude up there. And I tried to run and do my first running session on a field after to get out of the hospital, and uh, yeah, I know it was it was not a pretty sight. But that was just the that was the journey that I took. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So now to try and describe to. New Zealanders, Australians, people around the world that are listening to this, what it was like and the impact it had on society in South Africa to go from being pariahs and the sort of outcasts of the world generally, right? And suddenly being allowed back into international sport and seeing not only the international teams playing cricket or rugby or whatever it may be, but even provincial teams Super Rugby contacts, all this kind of thing. How would you describe to to people the magnitude of what of that sea change in South African culture in those early I'm days getting,
1: of the nineties? Uh, I mean, as you as you vocalising and talking, I'm getting goosebumps. That's how, I mean that's and, and, it, and it takes me back to ninety one, ninety two, uh, Super Ten Rugby, watching the Sharks come out and, and play on their first Super Ten tour and watching them play in New Zealand and hearing the New Zealand commentator talking about the South African players and seeing the Australians who were so, I mean, they obviously, I mean, they, they, they were they were—they were, they were so good and, uh, and, and and so skillful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me, there were two seminal moments in South African history, if we want to look at it from a historical point of view and as a nation mm-hmm. point of view. One was Nelson mm-hmm. Mandela coming out of prison, coming out of Victor Vestere Victor prison and walking out. Where did I watch that? I watched that sitting in at, at 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 my the family that I was staying with in Australia in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Watched Nelson Mandela walk walk out of prison. So I watched that from afar. Mm-hmm. Then we had 1994, our first free and fair democratic elections that happened in South Africa happened mm-hmm. in 1994. Right. Again, it was my that was my first touch of professional rugby in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I happened to be on a Super 10 tour. And we were in Auckland, and I we cast our first vote in Auckland. I cast my first vote for South Africa in Auckland, New Zealand, of all places. So there's a mm-hmm. huge tie-in um, with mm-hmm. how my life, my personal life, has been interwoven mm-hmm. with Australia, New Zealand, South Africa.
2: Mm-hmm. I still remember. Um, I still remember sitting at Kings Park, and you were playing for the Sharks. And I managed to get in there early. I had really good seats. And I sort of came down during the warm-up game. And I was sitting behind uh, Ian McIntosh, the Sharks coach. I was sitting behind Gary Tashman. They were sort of watching the warm-up game. And then before they went, it got changed and everything. And I was listening to them. Then they got up. They wandered off. And then the Auckland Blues came out. It was a super rugby game. So the Auckland Blues come out. And out comes Sean Fitzpatrick. Out comes Johnny Lomu. Out comes these, you know, legendary uh, all black players and run on the field. And I'm watching them warm up and I'm watching them go back inside to finish taping up. And I'm thinking to myself, Broz is going to play these people. And I was, I, it's still, although it was, you know, maybe four years after being brought back into World Rugby, I was still watching them and going, I, I, I can't believe Broz is actually going to play these. These people. It still was in those by mid 95, 96. Whenever that game was, it was still like mind blowing.
1: Well, that that was mind. I'll tell you what, from a South African perspective, it was mind blowing for me as well. It was mind blowing for us. That I, I know the game that you're talking about, 1998. where you had the it was Super Twelve, first game of the first game of the season. Uh, it was up against the Auckland Blues. Auckland Blues then were remember, Crusaders hadn't yet yes. achieved what they went on to achieve. Yes. At that stage, yes. the Auckland Blues were the pinnacle. I mean, you had... But it was Venturi, as, late as 98.
2: You had Jonah Lyman, you had, yes.
1: you had uh, Carlos Spencer. Um, it was intensely physical. The most physical game that you were going to have in that Super Rugby mm-hmm. series was going to come up against the Auckland Blues. Mm-hmm. And us as mm-hmm. a Sharks team, we'd, co- we'd we'd trained that whole off-season and we'd, we'd mm-hmm. targeted that first game and we knew we were going to be playing in February mm-hmm. in Durban, it's going to be hot and humid. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's going to be sticky. Um, the ball is going to be slippery, and we're going to come mm-hmm. up against these guys from New Zealand that are incredibly physical. Mm-hmm. And the only way you mm-hmm. can meet them is you've got to meet them physically as well and meet that physical challenge. And then you've got mm-hmm. to use your skills as well to win. But you've got to if you step away from that physical challenge, you're going to get blown away. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know we we trained and in that game we we considered ourselves massively the underdogs. And mm-hmm. uh, we ended up winning it. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I think I got the ball that got passed to me from a ruck. And it was so ball, it came so hard. It, uh, the old Butterfingers bros knocked the ball, almost knocked the ball on, but didn't knock it on. And I came infield, Henry Honeyball caught it, went in to score. And yeah. uh, it was a game very, very tight and a game I'll always remember. And some of my greatest uh, memories mm-hmm. are playing against the Auckland Blues, uh, the games at Eden mm-hmm. Park and what a stadium. I mean, mm-hmm. 1994, the first time... That I was on that Super 10 tour that I referred to when we,
2: mm-hmm. we traveled.
1: I was one of the dirty dirties. I didn't play any of the main games. I was playing the we mm-hmm. played midweek midweek games on, on that tour. And I think I mm-hmm. played Thames Valley and I played Western Australia with the two games I played
0: mm-hmm. back then.
1: But I'll never forget mm-hmm. setting foot on Eden Park was like mm-hmm. hallowed turf for me. I'd never seen a ground that looked so immaculate. The ground yeah. the, the, the grass had been cut. It was absolutely yeah. it was like that fluorescent green. Um, mm. And it was it was absolutely magnificent. It's a memory that'll that'll live with me mm. for a long time.
2: When you stood on that field, you know, and and again, just to try and <laughs> encapsulate this for people overseas, it's not only the 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 awe of playing in New Zealand as a professional rugby player, but it's because it just hadn't taken place for twenty years, right? It just was yeah. so unusual. And did you think to yourself? I'm standing on that same field where the flower bombs were being dropped as a little boy.
1: Of course I did. (laughs) That went through my... Of course I did, John. I mean, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what was so symbolic for me. It was the first rugby field. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, well, we played Thames Valley and I played in that game, but I played with a broken foot in my bone. Uh, Mm -hmm. I broke in one of my metatarsals, uh, but there was no way I was going to tell the coach because it was going to be my second game for the Sharks and I was playing with Mm -hmm. all these legends and mm-hmm. uh, I was a youngster, and I thought, "She's put. You've just got to play. You have got to grin and bear it. Your foot might hurt, mm-hmm. but you You know, how many times are you going to get how Often, you're going to get this opportunity. So mm-hmm. I ran onto the field, and I must say, I was quite slow around the pitch, but I was cause running with a broken bone in my foot. But we played that game, and in the, in mm-hmm. the, the the wind was absolutely howling. That's one thing I remember when we played that game mm-hmm. in Thames Valley. But yeah, yeah, to to set foot on that on Eden Park, and then I think when I came back with the Lions. In 1997, cutting mm-hmm. Lions. Our first mm-hmm. game was again at Eden Park, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a game where again the the Auckland Blues are very very strong. Uh, mm-hmm. Zinzan Brook, Sean Fitzpatrick, Robin Brook, um, mm-hmm. Ronny Clark. Um, mm-hmm. I can't. I mean, I'm going to make a mistake by trying to name all the players, but it was just amazing mm-hmm. to play play in that game mm-hmm. and the, the big. I quite forget the scrum offs name. The massive big scrumming mm-hmm. was like an extra dis forward. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. just just incredible.
2: Who let you know that you'd been selected for the Springboks.
1: Interesting. That's it. Actually, we'd, we'd played in a in a Curry Cup game for the for the Lions, and I think we just played against Western Province down in, in Cape Town, and we were flying back. And I didn't really get. It wasn't like I got told. It was almost like one of the management from the team came and said, "I think you've been selected for the for the for the Springboks." And then the next thing, I had all these guys on the, on the airplane flying back saying, no, you've been selected, you've been selected. And that's how I basically found out after the game flying back. And I'd, I remember James Small, I tried to tackle him and his boot had, mm-hmm. his caught into the corner of my nose here. And at half time, they had to, this whole flap was flapping. And probably the, the sorest thing that's ever happened to me mm-hmm. on the rugby field because no amount of anesthetic that they sprayed mm-hmm. into that nose could dull the pain when they mm-hmm. was stitching my this whole nose, the side of my nose here mm-hmm. back onto my, my face from his boot mm-hmm. getting stuck in my nostril and bringing it off. But so I had this like man- mm-hmm. mangled face, blue nose, black eye mm-hmm. and I rocked up at the at the Springboks with the Springboks the following week. Uh, but what it was just an yeah. incredible experience.
2: Yeah. Um, you're in that plane and all your your teammates are coming. You've been selected. You've been selected. Uh, did it feel real?
1: No, it didn't. That's why I actually almost didn't believe it until I saw it. Because you're never sure the guys are winding you. Up. So you like, and the between the management <laughs> and, the, and, the manage, and the management and the management One of the management said, "No, you've made it." I kind of like, but I wanted to see it for real. You know, and it's like it was weird because um, yeah. it's like this dream that you're going for. And and you're watching, these guys I in the You've made it. But you want to actually see the hard copy, you know? I want to see the hard copy. Don't tell me I've got a deal. I want to see the signed copy, you know. So it was like, yes, I'm excited, but I haven't seen it. So maybe something could yeah. still go wrong. That's stuck in the back of your head. Maybe someone yeah. changes their mind, or something yeah. different happens. I don't know. See,
0: mm-hmm. see, so, so John's asking you, how yeah. do you feel, and, I'm, and my question is, how many beers did you drink on that on the flight back? <laughs> I, can't <remember. laughs> I can't remember. Lucky it's only a two Lucky it's only a two hour flight,
2: so. <laughs> And when you when you saw it, did you find your family?
1: Yeah, yeah, I found my family. My family came up, watched the game, and uh, my brothers came up. Mm-hmm. It was up at uh, Loftus Versfeld in, um, in in Pretoria. Uh, was my, my first first game, but obviously it was from being selected to play my first game. I'm going jumping, but there was there was, there was quite a big gap because I play, I went on mm-hmm. the Super you know, the Tri Nations tour in 1997 with mm-hmm. the, with the box. But I didn't play mm-hmm. in any of the games uh, overseas in Australia or New Zealand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'd, I would only play the last game of the mm-hmm. nation series after Gary Teichman and Ruben Kruger had been injured. And that's where Russy Rasmus and myself right. uh, got an opportunity, start, started for, mm-hmm. for the box against Australia in, in, um, in uh, Pretoria. And right. uh, it was my first game. So, there was a bit of time in between. But it was amazing playing mm-hmm. my first game. The whole family came up. Everyone was there. It was just an incredible experience.
2: Mm-hmm. What was it like when you first arrived in the Springbok environment?
1: Yeah, oh, it's quite daunting actually, because huh? you, especially then, huh? because it's very, you very much had a seniority in the in a junior division. So you came in and you sat in the front of the bus. You didn't say too much. You kept quiet. Uh, you did what was told. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. If there were
1: bags lying on the ground or at, around the bus, you made sure you went and picked them up. Um, mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was daunting. But mind blowing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you got these like, you, you got these butterflies going through your stomach. It's just an amazing experience to be able to represent your country and being selected. It's something that you've set your heart on to do. So it was a real honour, um, mm-hmm. a real privilege, and I really was blessed mm-hmm. at that time. Um, I'll never forget. I was the the centre of a bit of a, a debate between Gary Tash from the captain and Louis Lake, the yeah. the administrator or the head of South African rugby at the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, because
1: I had the, they they issued everyone because you toured they issued you with your Springbok blazer, but I hadn't played a game yet, um, mm-hmm. so I, I couldn't really put the blazer on. So I you I would walk on it. the bus, I'd walk yes. on the bus with the blazer over my arm. Yes, um, Gary and uh, Louis later would pull me aside and tell me, "You're a Springbok. Put that blazer on." And then Gary Tasha would pull me to the side and say, "You put that blazer on. We're going to black some you. You don't put that blazer on until you play." <laughs> yeah.
2: Wait, uh, let me just explain. Let me translate. Let me translate. If you put that blazer on, you're going to get sorted. <laughs> yes.
1: Because you've got to earn it. You've got to play right onto the field first. Uh, I would walk around. And I'll never forget. I think it was before the the game in Australia. Um, he yeah. said, Roz, you've been on this tour now for a week or two. Put the blazer on. And I said, Doc, late. I can't. I can't. I haven't played for the box yet. He said, put it on. I said, I can't, Doc. And I didn't put it on and uh because yeah. that was the you know I couldn't yeah. and, uh and Doc Late, you know what Doc Late was like back in those days. There's not many people <laughs> that get say no you can't say no to doc Late, but uh you know it's, it's, I'd, I'd say no to him before I say no to the uh the entire springbok rugby team
2: yeah, they I mean well <laughs> for people who didn't know Doc Late, he was not a man used to being thwarted, was he no. No. no, but he but understood. T- he
1: was also he actually yeah. he understood because he didn't give me too much hard time. But he kept on telling me put my blazer on. But he also didn't take it to the next level. So he did understand. Yeah. So
2: yeah,
1: but it was good. It's part of it's part of the it's part of my experience of you mm-hmm. know, and it uh, it makes it special. So it really does.
2: Mm-hmm. What were, what did it? Let me let me step back for a moment and say I was at a at a high school reunion with you, Bros. Probably. 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago and uh, you were the guest speaker and there was a range of ages of of guys who had been at the same school as us both our year and guys in their 70s youngsters of about 20 and you were telling funny stories about rugby and we were laughing and then you said one line and this this hall full of guys sitting around the tables with beers and dinner and everything just went dead silent and this one sentence you said was I remember the first time I pulled on a Springbok jersey and the place was silent. Mm. And I looked around and I realized from older guys in their 70s to guys of nineteen, every single one of them was hanging on your words because every single one of them would have pulled that jersey on and gone to play at that moment if they could. Mm. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> what does it mean for a south african to pull on a springbok jersey it's
1: massive and it's absolutely massive and that's uh, i think we've got to give credit to uh, the late uh, nelson mandela uh, because I, I mean he's such he's been such a great leader um, and he it was a time when we almost lost that springbok jersey uh, because politically obviously it it was associated with with the past mm-hmm. and uh, to move forward a lot of people thought that we had to Relinquish that springbok, uh, but that springbok is etched in every one of our DNA and our veins and our arteries. And uh, to play for the springbok, you, when you put that springbok jersey on, you just grow an extra two three feet. Um, it's, uh, it symbolises what you want to, what 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 the game is all about for us as South African uh, to play in their jersey, and then to take it another level further. Just because I mean, this, we are this is a New Zealand mm-hmm. show that we're talking about. The next yep, thing is yep. get it and play against New Zealand. Uh, I mean that is that is that is what you what yeah. as a rugby player what I want, yeah. I wanted to get the Blazer and I wanted to play yeah. against New Zealand. That that was the all that was how it worked. It wasn't I want to play for play for South Africa, I want to play against England, or I want to play against Scotland. No, no, it was a play yeah. against New Zealand. And okay. uh, um, to have achieved that and I've only had two tests and I wish I could have had more, but I, I savor those two tests. I mean the one it was against, against the all blacks. Against the all blacks, one at Ellis Park, one at Christchurch. And yeah. uh, it's just uh, amazing memories, and uh, yeah. uh, so grateful that I got the opportunity to be blessed
2: to yeah. be able to wear that jersey. What is it like standing there with your brothers in green and gold, to and facing the Haka, and the All Blacks are letting rip?
1: Well, there's the first thing: there's the respect for the All Black. There is respect yeah. for the for the Haka. And then I, I believe it also feeds us or the team that's viewing it as well because, yes, it's a moment that the, the All Blacks can use to prepare for the game and it's their ritual to get into the, the game preparation. But I believe we can also use it as a preparation. When you sit and watch that, I can't, you stand, you're stand, you confronted by that. I like don't sit and watch it. You're confronted by it. You're challenged yeah. by it. It's happening yeah. in front of you. Man, if you if you not if that's not going to spur you on to play the game of rugby and put your body on the line, then I don't know what is going to because that's happening right for front It's a direct challenge. You're looking at your opposite number. He's doing the haka, and if you you can just stand there, savor it, come back and say, okay, now we're going to play the game, because and use it positively. I mean, that's I think it's a wonderful part of the game. Oh,
2: I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at the hacker, I'm not laughing at the Springboks, but Bros, I'm looking at you, and you look like you could get up and go play right now. <laughs> You're thinking about it, and I'm looking at your face, and you're picturing, it and you're seeing that opponent in front of you. And I'm just thinking, any minute now, Bros is going to get up and charge yeah, something. Yeah, He's going to tackle something.
1: Right. Yeah, that's I mean, that's I was, the one thing I was always passionate about. It. I mean, I might not have been the most skillful, but yeah, I, I, the the opportunity and the, the privilege to do that. I mean,
2: is just amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When you've lined up for the Hucker, who was opposite you?
1: It's all a blur. I've got to be honest. I can't remember who said the opposite. Now, it happened to me twice, and yeah. uh, there. I mean, obviously, I, there were other games where. I mean, even when I was in Australia as a youngster, there were teams that came across from New Zealand that performed the haka in front of us.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. But uh, I can't remember exactly who was in front of me. Uh, I just saw mm-hmm. black, and uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't seeing faces. I must be honest. Uh, I mean, and uh, okay. I think that that is a, that that. Maybe different players in different positions see different things. And if you're a fly half, mm-hmm. you've got to see the face. But sometimes when you're a loose forward, you see the jersey. And you mm-hmm. you, you, and, and challenge. I'm not worried about the individual. I'm worried about taking whoever's mm-hmm. in that black jersey down. Um, yeah. And that's, it's just that the mindset might be different. If you're a outside back, you've probably got to assess the the weaknesses of your, your opposite. But we're not playing in the position been... I was playing in. It didn't matter who what what face was in the jersey, but I had to take it down.
2: So I'm I'm laughing because you're being you're being um, what's the word I'm looking here? Discreet. You're saying yeah. if you're forward, you just take it down. If you're one yeah, of those fancy you... backs out there, then you you know then you then you've got time to look at people's faces and all the. But when you're doing the hard work up front, yeah,
1: more or less, it's it's that. But obviously, <laughs> I mean, there's the, the oh, I mean, you've got to also. You use your brains I mean that's where a lot of our, a lot of the players and New Zealanders Australians have been very good at
2: it, yeah so. let's go back to your first test right an incredible victory you make your debut and you thump the wallabies give them their worst hiding ever 64 13 wasn't it
1: 6122 yeah. I believe yeah
2: well yeah a couple of points here and there including a try do what do you remember of that game?
1: I remember, I remember the, the the bus journey there, the silence on the bus journey. I remember dead James... Dead silence. Simon, dead, dead silence on the bus, on the journey. Everyone sitting looking outside the windows and we travelled from Joburg to Pretoria, which is about a 14-minute drive. Um, and I, I, rem- I remember the blue lights for the peace uh, escorting us. I remember James Small and he obviously tragically passed last year. I remember his, a, we didn't have uh, iPods and... Apple yeah. phones, and they, he had a Walkman, and I remember the music yeah. coming from him. I remember yeah. the anthems. So the in-between stages, I remember the anthems, and then I remember running out onto the field. I remember the goosebumps, and the next thing, the ball's being kicked, and then it's next thing I'm you're scoring a try, and I mean, there's the energy from the stadium, and the a full Loftus First felt. is just an incredible place to play in front of. And when you score for your country, and then you've and you've you've beaten one uh, an international side there, it's just an amazing mm-hmm. amazing. It's an amazing feeling, and I don't think there's much. it's just that really tops it. It's just incredible, absolutely incredible.
2: There's not many players that can say. By the way, you played two tests against the All Blacks. There's not many players that can say they have a fifty percent win rate against the All Blacks.
1: Well, I mean, I only had two games, so the, 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 listen, don't the get
2: stuck up. <laughs> listen, so, I know it was, it's a small sample side, but you've got to take it if you can get it, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, well, listen, I mean, the one we won, I think uh, I came on as a reserve and that came in that game and the one before. And I mean, that yeah. New Zealand side was good, and I'll never forget running onto Ellis Park. And uh, and I've just gone blank on the number eight's name. And I told the story earlier, he was so good. Uh, Ron Cribb. Ron Cribb was the yeah. number eight for, for New Zealand. And in, in 2000, he was the mm-hmm. most incredible number eight in world rugby. He went on and had mm-hmm. injuries, it wasn't really the same thereafter. But coming mm-hmm. off the base of that scrum, Ron Cribb was a real threat. He was quick, he was strong, and uh, I, I'll never forget running on. I think I was replacing Corner Kricker, and uh, ran on onto that open side flanker. And uh, Oli LaRue was my lucid prop, and we about 10, 15 metres out from our from the try line, and New Zealand got the feed, bound down in that scrum, and I knew that Ron Cribb was would be coming from that scrum and would be going to go try score a try. And uh, if he scored that try, we lose the test match. He's like 10 minutes to go. Yeah. And uh, I said to Oli, as we get down, because Oli had this habit, between the two of us, we would played many games at super rugby level together, and i would be on that, that, that open side flanker. And he was strong enough to be able to shift his hips out, but keep his shoulders mm-hmm. in if, and straight.
2: Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. I asked
1: him, and I said, Ola, I'm going to need you on this one, boy. You're going to have to just throw those hips out, please. And then I used to invert my feet on the, on the at, at, at flank to give me an mm-hmm. extra step off, so I'd be half a meter ahead. Than what I would mm-hmm. be if I ordinarily had my feet like you normally do when you buy, you bind there. Yes. And so I did that got Oli to throw his hips out a little bit, and I was expecting Ron Cribb to come, and uh, as sure as nuts, mm-hmm. he came on that thing. And Ron Cribb was sensational in 2000. It was probably one of the most important tackles I ever made in my life. No one even mm-hmm. noticed it, uh, but it was a <laughs> difficult tackle to make. No, because it's an ordinary tackle, but it's just yes. you run on yeah. test match, you've got to do it, and uh, straight away yeah. you know that you're in the in a the, in the pressure cauldron against. Uh, yeah. You know, you're you're, you're one of the greatest Mm -hmm. rugby nations, if not the greatest in in the world, you know.
2: I have a list of names here that we're going to run through shortly. I'm going to ask your immediate thoughts as I give you a name. And one of those names was Ron Cribb on my list to ask you about him because he certainly was a very gifted player. Never seemed to quite fulfil his potential, right?
1: No, he just had that, he had that year in 2000. He had a great year in 2000 and then I think he had knee injuries and uh, it was just never the same again mm-hmm. thereafter. But 2000, he was a real threat uh, from mm-hmm. the base of that scrum. And for New Zealand, he was a really,
2: really good mm-hmm. player. Of all the teams you played for, and you played for a number of professional rugby teams, including at international level, which one had the best environment? Oh, geez, that's an unfair question.
1: That's very difficult, John.
2: Um, okay so let's put, they were let's, different,
1: let's they were put different it this way like, there were different environments oh, I what it, did you enjoy just, well it, again i'm mean, going they, they are they were different different stages in a person's life and they're different mm-hmm. they're different seasons and 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 so the experiences change as you proceed through and not all of them all are going to be the same and uh, we don't want them to all be mm-hmm. the same because otherwise we're not changing if we're not changing right. we're not growing if we're not growing we're not developing and if we're not mm-hmm. growing developing then what are we doing here mm-hmm. so they they were always they were going to they were different and I guess the start here when I when I, when I got that first go, which I know I played a bit of a bit of provincial rugby ninety four ninety five, but I really saw my first year and getting a go was nineteen ninety seven, when I had a chance with the Lions and the, it was a very young Lions side because they, mm-hmm. that that Lions side uh, previously had been dominated by the uh, ninety five. World Cup uh, Springboks, uh, your Francois Pinard's Rural Australia, Johannes uh, Stradam, you can name the mm-hmm. whole list, Yapi Mulder, any mm-hmm. Leroux, etc. Et Some of them were left over, but a lot of them mm-hmm. had left. Um, and so it was a very young team that was mm-hmm. coming through, and it was just to get that initial start. So there was a really good phase there for me. And then as mm-hmm. well at the Sharks, I mean, the Sharks is the most idyllic place to play rugby. I don't think there's any, any place that's set up better to play the game of rugby. You've got this beautiful environment, great climate. Uh, you got a beautiful stadium. You got access to the sea where we were training um, three mm-hmm. times a week. Sometimes down on, the, on on the coast and running or doing doing mm-hmm. in and outs on the beach. And for me, that absolutely mm-hmm. that that talked to me. It warmed. It, I loved it. And you had a great vibe, mm-hmm. and my, my house was only a ten minute drive from the stadium, so that was great as well. I mean, I was a youngster at that stage. And then later on in my career, you're playing mm-hmm. for the for the Bulls, and it's a different ethos altogether. Mm-hmm. And Yes, it was, I was the only English guy in that mm-hmm. Bulls team when I was there, but it was mm-hmm. an incredibly tight and strong-knit family that Heineke Meyer had built um, at that stage, and the Bulls were at the height of their power mm-hmm. with Victor Matfield, Farid Priya, um, Bucky's Boeta, Gia Cranier, Donny Rousseau. I mean, just there's four locks mm-hmm. that we've mentioned They can play international rugby anywhere mm-hmm. in the world, all of them at one union, and so it just went mm-hmm. on. So. And to get there and then eventually get a start in that Currie Cup final at the end of the year in that team amongst that legendary side, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it was amazing. And then experiences overseas as well, where you get thrown out of your, you know, everyone thinks it's all glamorous and easy to go and play overseas and now oh, you pick up a contract. But remember, you walk into a club, you walk into a dressing shed or a change room, and sometimes you don't know a soul that you're walking into. And you walk in there and you've got to shake mm-hmm. everyone's hands and you've got to go and go the rugby then. Once you're in that change room, there's only one place you earn the respect, and that's out on the field. And uh, it's a, it's a, and you you've probably by being a foreigner coming in there nine times out of ten there's a local guy that's lost a position because you've come in, um, and uh, you've got to you know so there's but they are fantastic experiences, and then you're meeting people from other countries. Uh, I mean, I think it's Matt Sexton's birthday today, or it was yesterday, from New Zealand, mm-hmm. played for, for for the Crusaders at Hooker. I meet him mm-hmm. by going and meeting and playing for Ulster when I'm over in Ireland, and becomes a good mate of mine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, getting getting introduced to people like that. Another guy, Paul Griffin, who's now still in uh, in uh, in in Italy, but also from Christchurch, and uh, played all the I think I think he played about 100 Tests for Italy uh, mm-hmm. at scrum half. Now he's one of my good mates because we travel overseas. So how do I compare that experience as opposed to a really good one that I had at the Sharks or the Bulls? But they owed yeah, me. They showed gave me different things that have all filtered mm-hmm. into my life. So, And sometimes the tough times are, are there and there are tough times in the sport. There are going to be tough times. Mm-hmm. There are going to be youngsters watching this thing. Hey, I want to be a professional sportsman. Hey, there's going to be times when you're going to get dropped. Mm-hmm. There's going to be times when you've broken, you've had a shoulder operation or you've torn ligaments or you've broken bones. And things aren't going well for you. And it's about those times and that's where the character comes out and how are you going to pull yourself back out of that? What are you are going to do? How are you going to train? Your attitude when you get back out there? And how you take a loss and how you take a disappointment and how you take being told that mm-hmm. your by your coach that he doesn't want to select you this week because he thinks someone else is yeah. good enough. And how are you going to react to that? Because not everyone's mm-hmm. going to be your premier player that's always getting that that's always getting yep. selected every week in and week out. And uh, mm-hmm. there's only a few percentage that are the cream of the crop, the Bowden Barretts and people like that, the Bryan mm-hmm. Banners, et cetera, et cetera, that just floated that mm-hmm. they don't just float into a team, they put a lot of hard work beforehand. But they mm-hmm. have that skill set and they've done the work and they're just they're, they're, gifted players. They're, yes. they're just gifted mm-hmm. players. The rest of us, you've got to work, and you're gonna have disappointments and it's part of the journey mm-hmm. and it's part of the experience and it's something you've got to you've got to embrace it.
2: I'm not gonna ask you, you talk about this thing about gift being gifted and putting in the work. I'm not gonna ask you about the players and we've all come across them at all different levels of sport who we were gifted but didn't have the drive and didn't put the work in. But who, if you think back over your career, who stands out to you, might be more than one, who stands out to you as somebody who made the absolute most of their talent?
1: It's such a big question, Jono. It's hard for me to answer. I've got to be honest, without giving that a lot of thought because I'll end up tripping myself up. But there are players that I, there was, what was his name? There was a a prop, Chittadini. Cittadini, that played for Calvazano, never played right. I mean, I, so I could, it, where do I, where do I, because every, everywhere I go, there would be players that outperform their yep. station as well, because every team's got their player. So it's, I think it's unfair to, to really nominate them. But i so us, this us guy about this guy.
2: I'm going to mention this guy. This, this guy, guy. Never,
1: he hadn't played, he was a beast of a, he was a massive guy, he played, I think it was Lucid or proper t- proper. can't quite remember, but never really been introduced to the skills, he was running around with us at training when I was at Calderzana, always on the periphery, and then we'd play these contact sessions, and you didn't want to tackle the guy because when he carried the ball, he had such strength and ability, but he'd never, no one, he hadn't come up through a rugby background like a New Zealand yeah. or a South African, he'd grown yeah. up in Italy, and the amazing thing is I looked at this guy, and he didn't really have the skills, and I would watch him after I'd retired three, four years later playing for Italy and thinking, my gosh, how well have you done? And you did have the – he had the, the physique, he had the strength and he had the – all that. But he he had to go and learn the skills of rugby. And he had gone and applied himself and learned the skills of rugby and was now playing for the Italian national side. Yeah. And when I first met him, he was like running around the training field and we were thinking, oh, what, you'll probably never see this guy again. Um, and there are lots of stories like that and it's really – and I can go you can go to every province and every franchise that I was at. If I scratch the surface and give it some thought, there'll be someone there that you could pull mm. that name out that and so this is the guy and that's it's and I think it's a it's a message of hope. Mm. Big message of hope to all players out there. You know, mm. it's just carry or keep on keeping on and don't give up and don't mm. keep on persevering because you never know when that break's gonna come and uh, when you yeah. get that break you've got to be ready for that break and you've got to take it and go. That's the that's mm. the secret. You've got to put the training in, put the work in. Sometimes it comes before you've had the opportunity to do that, but that's that's rare. Mm. But it's it's you know there's it's not just the the, the most talented guys that always make it through. Mm. They're also the guys that work hard that get through and you know guts mm. determination, um, work ethic and uh, i know there are lots of stories from new zealand rugby um that fit that category
2: which one of your coaches taught you the most
1: <laughs> jeez
2: i know they all contributed to your development t- but which I is the one that
1: and it's probably the guy that coached me the longest and that's mac yeah mcintosh huh? so mm-hmm. uh, i mean everywhere you'd have an under 21 coach but he'd be fleeting so you'd be involved in your life for a year or two I suppose mm-hmm. Mac, it was not. I, I was, he, he had adopted he, his his mentor had been Rod McQueen from from Australia. Um, he yeah. had this this theory about the advantage line, which is totally right and relevant in today's context as well. Get over mm-hmm. the advantage line, play 15 against 10 men, and his whole game plan revolved around. That's why someone like Henry Honeyball was so good in that shocks set up in the in the, mm-hmm. the mid 90s, late 90s. Um, and it's probably Mac because huh? I mean I was exposed to Mac for the longest, uh, mm-hmm. and Mac was a true—he mm-hmm. was a true rugby coach. You know, a guy that's just a rugby coach. He's not—he is a rugby coach, and he's coached his whole life, and that's what he does—is a rugby coach. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he viewed the game differently, and he was—he—he vocalised himself well, and he was very—and he was passionate about what he did, and he was actually quite humorous too. Um, and so I, I would, mm-hmm. would probably have to be in that yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Did he have an impact on you outside of the pure game of rugby? Mm,
1: not as much. Um, I was uh, very much uh, in Mac's time. I was still a youngster coming through, so mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, that and Mac did have a big impact on a lot of the players outside of the game. But. I was my, mainly my formative years coming into the game, uh, 94, mm-hmm. 95, uh, coming back into it 97, 98, and then mm-hmm. uh, 99 uh, mm-hmm. he retired. But yeah, so he's the, more from a rugby point of view. Um, it's amazing, I'm very good friends mm-hmm. with the son. The son's probably out of rugby, he's had a big impact on me, um, but it's not Mac, it's the son,
2: right. Craig. Yeah. It's his son, yeah. Also yeah. played for the Sharks
1: also played a few games for the Sharks and he played, him and I played provincial, uh, not provincial, club rugby together for our club in, in Durban North uh,
2: in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you, because leadership is such an important part of rugby, I was going to ask you about the captains that are, had a huge impact on you, the captains that really inspired you and, and brought the best out of you.
1: Gary Toshman was lucky enough to mm-hmm. pound a Tosh. I would say Vol Bartman, right in the really beginning, and I don't know if many New Zealanders remember him, but he was that uh, flanker mm-hmm. that played against New Zealand Cavaliers in the, he was an 88 um, mm-hmm. in South Africa. Um, and he was the, the Sharks captain. And he was an absolute legend. And uh, it was, for me, it was just his humility. And mm-hmm. it did not so much. Uh, Tosh mm-hmm. um, had a big impact. Wayne Favey, uh, back mm-hmm. in the Sharks. Um, you know, those and they are basically guys from uh from my, my Durban days, which were my formative years. That had a had a mm-hmm. bigger impact on me, I would say. Mm-hmm. And they, those are three of the the captains that, mm-hmm. that kept me
2: during the shots. Mm-hmm. Which teammate made you laugh? <laughs> <laughs> I could, I uh, can see you it's running it's through it's the it's stories. What can I well, tell?
1: Yeah, there's so there's so, there's so there's so many. I mean, sheep is there's two Craig Davidson, Trevor Halstead, uh, Kevin Putt, New Zealander that's back probably back in New Zealand. Um, yeah. So there's a, there are a couple. There are a couple.
2: <laughs> I can see I can see the stories there. You're going no, I can't yeah. tell that. Yeah. I can't tell. <laughs> there are a couple. <laughs> I can't tell that. I can't tell. Yeah, yeah, Give yeah. us one that you can tell.
1: No, she's just. It's just uh, you know, these experiences, I mean, they, they all blend in. I mean, you know, even uh, 94, uh, 90, 98, I remember being there with yeah. the Sharks, 97 with yeah. the Lions. Being in Hamilton, just outside, just where you guys, where Paul, you guys, you guys are from, John, where you guys are staying. I remember staying in that motel. Uh, I remember there wasn't much to do. I remember the weather weather wasn't great. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember doing playing. We'd, we'd get into teams playing one bounce in the in the courtyard that was like the driveway mm-hmm. of this motel and mm-hmm. we'd all be playing one bounce and eventually it gets so boring you you start adding little gimmicks onto it and the
2: mm-hmm. guy
1: who loses the the one bounce then has to take his shirt off then has to take and eventually he's playing there with no clothes on
2: mm-hmm. or he has to run in
1: the streets and you're finding little funny things to do and I mean it's or, or you, or we did that we'd end up doing it in the middle of the you'd have games in the in the corridors in Queenstown at the hotel we'd stay yeah. in We'd be playing cricket down the corridor because there's nothing else to do. And then some guest hotel guests would walk out, or and then some guy'd have a penalty that were given, and obviously the guy might be in a compromising situation. And then the psych could walk out. There's just there's, there's so many different or the the difference in language barriers, you know. When I travelled with Thank the you. with the bulls and uh, <laughs> uh, and and you you arrive in Canberra and. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't even know, because there's it's translation It's going into New Zealand, so you don't know the translations. But the guy's like, the guy, Donnie Rousseau, says, uh, who, 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 an Afrikaans, means drive, like, who drives the team. And uh, so he gets to the hotel, and he says, uh, um, he doesn't ask who's the manager of the hotel. He says, who drives this hotel? Because he can't quite translate the English Afrikaans translation. <laughs> And I mean, it doesn't. You when you know the translation, then you're going to laugh. And the same with. Yeah. He did. I remember him getting to his room, and he's rooming with Jacques Cronier, and they're sitting in this room in Canberra, in Australia. And it was before we had SMS and WhatsApp and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And, uh, and 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 <laughs> and he phones downstairs, and he finds the the lady downstairs at reception, yeah. and he says. Excuse me, and in his broken English off He says, Excuse me, miss, I'm suspecting a fox. Can you please send it up to the room? Because he's expecting a fax that's coming through. From home, from South Africa. But he gets the he gets the words wrong, you know? And he's just <laughs> arrived in this hotel. And he's telling the lady to send the fox up to the up to the room. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So there's lots of there's lots of little stories. Running around in Cape Town with Dick Muir at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning trying to raid the pantry in the hotel in the hotel restaurant and naughty yeah. stuff like
0: that it. it's that's all funny and hang we were on, staying in a motel mates. i mean they're like five-star hotels nowadays you guys are staying in motels geez. we
1: were staying in a motel mate with this rickety old bed and shame i mean for someone in that motel it might still be running i'm not sure but it was got some fantastic memories of that motel and having breakfast and drinking coffees in the in the in the the, the communal eating area yeah, but there wasn't much to do, and it certainly wasn't five star.
2: <laughs> who was the teammate who had you thinking, "How does he do that?" Um, there's t- probably two. And right? I'm talking about as a player when you.
1: Uh, Etienne Wouter, I don't know if you remember Etienne Wouter, the late Etienne Wouter. He was killed in a car accident in uh, in 2005.
2: Yes. With the played blonde, for,
1: played for the Bulls. The blonde lot. Yeah, and he was playing mm-hmm. he, was, he was playing inside center. Van Anderlefier was always sitting on the bench. And oh, and he never got selected mm-hmm. for the Spring Box. Probably the most unlucky, for me, out of all the players I've played, it's probably the most unlucky player not to have played for the Spring Box. The most incredible, incredibly gifted, incre- incredibly gifted player that could step yeah. off either foot and was so quick on the field and scored. Mm-hmm. So if you go and look in 2005, go look for highlight reels of him and go look at the tries mm-hmm. that he scored for that Bulls team. Was just incredible, mm-hmm. and I'll never forget that um, Curry Cup final that year. And he, st- I was trying to run on the inside and support him, and he stepped. I think it was off the left foot to come infield, and he just took off. He literally accelerated about 10, 15 meters ahead, and I was nowhere near supporting him. I was coming. In. Mm-hmm. I would have arrived wherever he was going to arrive three, four seconds later because mm-hmm. he just, he was just incredible. And the other guy was Brian Abana. Um, you know, and what used to, what used to really blow my mind in the short time that I was able to play. In the same mm-hmm. team as it was, his ex- it was more training than in the game. It was when you go through those training runs and you go through your your plays, and you just see Brian Abana coming th- through the line, and he comes through with such speed, and you think, "Cheapers, where did that come from?" And you trying to plot along, yeah. trying to keep up, And I mean, this eth- this out and out athlete just comes searing through. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they the two that I can say that I would be sometimes in the field, and I go, "Cheapers, how did he just do that?"
2: Finish, finish the sentence for me. If Brian Habana had played at the end of an all black back line. Yes.
1: And I'll put a butt there because he got a he he had Farida prayer and we forget this. A lot of his tries were scored from Farida prayer was central, and Fareed de prayer's kicking game was incredible. And you, if you mm-hmm. go look at some of those, those those highlight tapes of Brian, go just look and see how many of those tries mm-hmm. he scored that were from kicks from Farid. So if he played on that. And I'm not saying, I mean, these New Zealanders have great off-backs and stuff and great players. Remember Brian Brian School Brian was an incredible athlete, and he, and he used to a lot of his plays he'd score off free looking for the space, popping him into that space, Fareed Dupriya, mm-hmm. or oh, a lot of the kicks from Fareed Dupriya. So we
2: mm-hmm. see Brian
1: scoring the try, but we've also got to see what happened just before that try and who was involved. Mm-hmm. Brian then had the intercept try. He was very good at finishing. Um, if he'd been on the end of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of All Black backline, yes, I know the All Blacks definitely give it, uh, move the ball more, and especially from counter-attack, have always been lethal. So mm-hmm. Brian would have been in his element. But, jeepers, if you look at the wingers that... <laughs> All Blacks have mm. produced over the last 10 years. I mean, it's mm. frightening and staggering. Some of the guys, And it's actually it's not staggering who's in the team, it's staggering who they leave out the team at wing. Mm. So, they, it's not like New Zealand have been, had any shortage mm. of wingers. But uh, yeah, Brian mm. would have been lethal there. Um, but I also, I mean, mm-hmm. his uh, my, my, my point is that him and Faria Dupree mm-hmm. had, a, had a good understanding. So, if you lift Brian out by himself, maybe some of those tries that mm. Faria helped set up, we wouldn't yeah. have seen scored. Um, okay. But Brian still was an, an, a phenomenal athlete, and wherever he went, mm. he would have been amazing, absolutely mm. amazing. And the big thing about Brian we, is, is his humility yeah. as well, which I want to admit. Really. Because we talk about talk about his, him as an athlete, talk about him as a try scoring freak, and
2: yeah,
1: also just a damn good bloke off the field as well, and very humble.
2: Right. Last question, Bruce. Um, everything is up for grabs at the moment. The whole structure of rugby, the calendar the timetable, the tournaments, and I'm going to appoint you as World Rugby Commissioner, you know, a la US sports, like the NBA, the NBA Commissioner or the NFL Commissioner, right? And you are the benevolent dictator of World Rugby, right? And you can change whatever you like, you can keep whatever you like, you can institute whatever you like. If I was to ask you, what would you do?
1: I think... um God has given us a, a window here. Everyone everyone has pulled back. Everyone's looking to the to the new normal and what happens when we come out of corona. Um, I believe this corona now maybe is giving us a, a, a moment to pause and a moment to reflect and a moment to look on where, where the state of the game is at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we are passionate. I mean, all of us are passionate rugby supporters, but we've got to be honest. So has rugby grown? What's happened with rugby? What happened in the Rugby World Cup? I think we got more eyeballs on the on the teddy screen than ever before. Uh, we had more people watching Rugby World Cup semi-finals: England against us, uh, England against New Zealand, uh, Japan against South Africa, Ireland against mm-hmm. Japan, Scotland against Japan. We've never had mm-hmm. so many people viewing the game. What we're we doing to grow mm-hmm. it, um, and I think this this enforced stop in our game. Mm-hmm is something we could never, ever have done. And maybe we've got opportunity now to have a look and see where we're going. Why are we playing Super Rugby games that we see a game being played in Eden Park, Ellis Park, Loftus Park, um, Sydney Football Stadium, wherever you want it, and the ground is empty. And we've got 10,000 people watching a game of rugby. We should be filling the stadium And What have we done wrong? Where have we heard? Um, do we go into this? And maybe we've got to look at this. Calendar and say let's get this thing. We've had to stop this thing, and now we, are we we don't know what to holds We don't know when we're going to be, we going to when we're going to be watching the game of rugby again. We don't know when the next Super Rugby game is going to take place,
2: mm-hmm. when the
1: next Springbok um, All Black game is going to be taking place, or the Blatterslow mm-hmm. Cup, whatever it is. We don't know where it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've got to pause here. Let's get our calendar in line now and say, isn't this the time now to shift the whole global season? Why wait until 2022, whenever they're talking about, it? because right now you've got something that's happened. That's closed the gate, shut the stadiums, got everyone into their homes and everyone is sitting and listen. Great books and great works are written in times like this, where you've got time to reflect and time to sit and, and think about what we're doing and, uh, I I think we've got to have a good look at rugby and see how we we, we, we grow it because we had just had a 2019 Rugby World Cup that was the most incredible Rugby World Cup hosted by a nation that did an incredible job through tsunamis, Mm -hmm. through everything and managed to deliver and get eyeballs on the game. But what's happened thereafter? What's happened thereafter? And we're not filling the stadiums up. Super rugby, there's a problem. We need to get more people back in. We need to get people into the stadiums. How are we going to do it? What's our strategy? Asking me to give it right now? Well, I don't know. I've got to sit and think about it. But I do believe we should. Maybe we got to look at aligning these these seasons. We've had to stop now. Europe yeah. stopped. The whole world has stopped. Eighty yeah. percent of the global workforce at the moment is not working. Eighty mm-hmm. percent of the global workforce is sitting in situations like this. If you are working, working from home. If we look at the uh, the 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 um, the oil price in America has gone below zero. At the moment, you you it's a negative. On the on yeah. a, on per, per gallon. So we're living in times that we've never lived in before, but maybe we should be using these times and how we're going to emerge from these times better and in a better position as a, rag, as, 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 as a as rugby union. And mm-hmm. maybe this is the time. Why wait another year or two if we're going to do this global season? And I know that we've got uh, these uh, Bill Beaumont and Augustine Pichot uh, challenging mm-hmm. each other at the moment for the for the for whoever heads up world rugby. Come on, just get these things moving. Let's get going. We've got to pause at the moment and use this pause so when we come back, we can grow from it and we can move forward with the plan and mm. do it collectively. And it's, it's not six nations against Southern Hemisphere and, and mm-hmm. division. And uh, if you look at what's happening, six nations are still alive and kicking. I mean, there's, what we see there, it's pretty healthy. But we've also got to look at some of the massive stadium we've got here in South Africa, the 50,000 seaters that we're not filling, that we're putting 10, 15,000 uh, bums on the seats and it looks empty. And we're comparing that to a European season where the Exeter, what are they called? Exeter Kings or the Bears. Exeter Chiefs. Chiefs, Chiefs,
0: Chiefs yes.
1: Are playing against the Leicester Tigers and they've got 10,000 or 12,000 in the stadium. But it's absolutely rip-roaring and looks like it's a full stadium. But in South Africa, right. we've got all these 50,000 seaters that you don't have an atmosphere when the stadium's empty. We've got to relook right. at the game. Look at how we're going to position it and where we're going to grow it. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. a big question. It's an important question, John. And... Uh, it's not my job every day to be doing that kind of thing because obviously I'm doing mm. my work on the sideline, but it's part of what we're passionate about this game and we want to yep. grow this game to make sure that our generation and my kids and the future generation are playing this wonderful game that unites us, that allows me in South Africa to be sitting here in Joburg talking to people down in New Zealand because purely because of the love of the game.
2: Brilliant interview. Thank you very much, Warren, for giving us your time. No problem.